You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. English is your native tongue, or it's not, but you know it well enough to be dreaming in it. You don't need a book that teaches grammar from the ground up. All you need is a guide that answers the questions you have from time to time, an explanation of the problems that typically crop up when you're writing sentences. Some relate to grammar. Is it who or whom, will or would, it's with an apostrophe or it's without? Some relate to usage. Is it lie or lay, affect or effect, every day as one word or every day as two words? Some relate to punctuation. What belongs here, a comma or semicolon? dash or hyphen, single quotes or double. Whatever the question, this book answers it in a way that will make sense to you. Now, how can I make that claim when I don't know you and I've never seen your sentences? Unless you're very different from the thousands of people I've taught over the last three decades in both academic and business classrooms, I do know you, and I have seen your sentences. I know where your grammar and usage errors hang out. I know where your punctuation gaffes live. I can tell you exactly what those characters look like and the fragrances they wear. After reading this text, you'll be able to spot a mistake from around the corner. You may even be able to smell it. Janice Bell is an English professor and writing consultant and teaches writing and grammar at Golden Gate University. Her first book is Clean, Well-Lighted Sentences. Thank you for joining me, Janice. Oh, it's my pleasure. Janice, there are a lot of different grammar books out there, and I'd just like to ask you, you know, talk, tell me first, what other books are, do people typically have out there? Well, people talk about Strunk and White. They've been talking about that for years, and it's a lovely book. Um, actually, those are the authors. The name of the book is Elements of Style. Most people recognize it. It's mostly about style, though. There are a couple of hints about grammar and a little bit about punctuation, but uh, not enough, really, to target the kinds of mistakes that people are making nowadays. And it isn't just nowadays that they've been making for decades. Now, another book that I think is, is often also uh, mentioned is the Chicago Manual of Style. Yes, and of course, that's an excellent reference book. It's huge also. Uh, it also is not a discussion of grammar with sample sentences and questions and answers and quizzes, etc. But it's a wonderful reference book, especially if you understand grammar terminology, because, of course, it uses a lot of it. Now, you've written your new book, Clean, Well-Lighted Sentences, is a kind of a different kind of grammar book. What inspired you to write it? I've been teaching writing for 35 years, and I've seen a lot of writing, not just in universities, but in the workplace, um, profit, non-profit, government. I've, I've, I've taught nonstop, not even taking summers off, so I've seen hundreds of thousands of papers that people produce. And uh, over and over again, I see the same mistakes cropping up. And I'm talking about writers who are native speakers of English. So it, it occurred to me that people don't need a grammar book, as I just read from my introduction, from the ground up. They just need to be told about these typical errors that keep happening. Um, and if one explains it to them and gives them examples and shows them the kinds of sentence structures that are risky, then my feeling is perhaps uh, these errors are going to disappear and everybody's going to be writing clearly. I, I like this idea of risky sentences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, some of them are risky to us because we don't really understand what we're doing. We don't understand certain kinds of structures. We don't know what we're into. And so we make the mistakes. And by the way, I'm going to extend that. We also don't understand fully what all of our punctuation marks do. So we rely heavily on commas and periods, and we're not so sure about those. Uh, and you cover them quite well in this book. Now, tell me a little bit, when you how long ago did you decide to write this book? Mm, let's see, uh, 2006. So you've been teaching at that time for some 30-plus years. Mm -hmm. Why all of a sudden did you decide to write a book? Well, I'll tell you the whole story. I had written another book. I never got it published. I never tried to get it published, but I was using it in my classrooms. And I could tell from that book uh, what to do for this book. There was a lot more in that book. It was a little bit more academic. There was more grammar terminology, believe it or not. Uh, this book uses grammar terminology, but only when I have to and I explain it 
uh, as clearly as possible at the beginning, and I explain it again every time I use it. I almost apologize for using grammar terms in this grammar book, but still, I like to think that it's, it, it will be very clear to everyone, not just people at universities studying language. Uh, anyway, that first book was more dense. It had more in it, and uh, it had errors in it that people weren't even making because they weren't writing those kinds of sentences anymore. So I had noticed that over the years, what was becoming out of date about that book, and decided that I would write a, a different one that was targeted only on the most common errors and nothing more. And, and once you decided to start writing this book, you've been teaching writing at this point for 30-something years. You've already written a, another book. Um, tell me, you know, your process for, for uh, creating this book. Did you... The, the way it's laid out is very organized and methodical. Was your method of writing it organized and methodical? Well, I should hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite sure what that means. Well, I knew the order in which I was going to discuss the different grammar issues, and I knew that the last chapter was going to be on punctuation. Uh, so I would sit down a week at a time and focus on one chapter, honing from my previous book only what people need to hear in 2006, 2007, 2008, etc. And so I guess in that sense, it's organized. But, I, you know, I've been teaching writing for a long time. So it's natural to me to stay on my topic and stay focused and stay well organized. That's what I do. Don't ask me about anything else in life. Believe me. <laughs> um, well, tell us, as you wrote this book, did you seek the advice of the people you were teaching? Did you show it to people you were teaching and say, does this help? Oh, I didn't show it to them. I remind you, I had written that other book, first of all, so mm -hmm. I knew what was working and what wasn't working. Mm -hmm. um, I, yes, it's also true that as I churned out a chapter for this book, I would use it in my classroom, and I would see uh, whether there were any questions or whether there was a segment of it that somebody wasn't clear on. And in one instance, there was. I remember there was one sentence in one of my chapters that was ambiguous to one person, and so I changed it. Wow. That's right. But yeah, by now, I know how people hear the language. I know what confuses them. I know um, how they will best receive the message that I'm trying to give. Believe me, I mean, when you're teaching nonstop for that long and with such a diversity of people in your audiences, you get it. You understand how to explain something so that everybody in the room understands. So this is uh, the book that you are not only born to write, but you actually lived to write. <laughs> to a certain extent. Absolutely. I, I do feel that way. You think you're joking. I have a theory that when I go to the next life, everybody's English is going to be perfect, not because they've read my book or had me as a teacher, but because I will no longer need a job. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, having, having written this book, this is a kind of an unusual type of book to write. Could you tell me about, um, you had this book written. You're well-versed in the you know, world of English. Could you talk about, like, uh, selling it? Did I mean, as you wrote it, did you decide to, how, did you have an agent? Or what did you do that once you had finished it? Well, I didn't have an agent, and I wasn't thinking of selling it, but I was speaking with a friend who is in the um, writing industry. She's a writer in New York, and she said, I have a friend who's an agent. Why don't you pass it along and see what you can do with it? So I passed it along, and the agent loved it, and um, sent it to everybody in the universe. And after a year, somebody took it. Now, did w. you... W.W. Norton took it. As a matter of fact, I was shocked. Well, yeah, no, they're the, they're the, the peak of such books. So I think it's, a, it's quite a, a prestigious publisher to, mm -hmm. to have your, your book from. Um, once it, it sold, did they come back at you and try to correct your grammar? Uh, that's an interesting question. It, uh, yes, I, I must say yes, that it, it, it wound up in the hands of two different people, um, and both of them had quite a keen interest in changing my sentences, not necessarily correcting my grammar, but changing my sentences. And I didn't take well to that, and happily, I didn't have to give in to it either. So I did phone my editor and ask, you know, how much of this do I, I mean, what do I do here? I had never gone through this process before. And she said, you can say that uh, you want it as it was. And so I did that in 99.9% .9 of the cases. There was one thing I learned from the copy editor, and that is that semicolon had become one word, S-E-M-I-C-O-L-O-N. I was still thinking of it as hyphenated. So I'm grateful to her for that. So you were duking it out with the copy editors. You're, I take it your editor had no issues then? No, my editor loved this book. She had, she had no 
problem with it from the beginning, and she's adored it throughout the whole process. Well, now, once you've got your, your book copy edited and uh, uh, put to bed, did, did you what, what happened next, I mean, when it came out? Next, I learned that as a new author, I was largely responsible for its publicity. And that was quite a shock. I had not known that until the book was on the market and in the stores. Uh, I'm not a marketing person. <clears throat> I'm unaccustomed to selling myself, so to speak. I'm accustomed to selling grammar and punctuation, but not a book and not me as an author. And so that was uh, a challenge, to put it lightly. It really was. I'm lucky that um, I had known Michael Krasny for about the same three decades that I've been teaching. Uh, my first university job was at San Francisco State where Michael teaches, and so I met him there and remained friends with him, and he invited me to come on Forum, and that launched a very nice publicity campaign for me right there because a lot of people listened to Forum, and the book started selling. And in fact, it got on the bestseller list for four weeks after that Forum interview. Really? Which, uh, the San Francisco? San Francisco Bay Area bestseller list, yes. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that something? A grammar and punctuation book. <laughs> what? <laughs> Well, it's a it's a wonderful book, and it's really really helpful. It's super easy to find exactly what you want in it at any point in time. I think it's the kind of thing that actually gets used as opposed to gets bought and then shelved mm. and gathers dust forever. This book sits by your computer, so you can ask the same dumb question nine hundred ninety nine times because most of us who speak the English language don't really know it very well. Do we? Well, we do. We do. We do. 98% we have down. This book is covering the other 2%. Now, uh, tell me a little bit about your organization for the book. Um, you start out with uh, a, a nice little preface, which you read to us, and then you give us the, the grammar terms. Tell us a little bit about those grammar terms. I use as few of them as possible throughout the book, but I have to talk about a noun and a pronoun and a verb and an adjective and an adverb. So um, I, uh, I had to define those terms in the beginning for those who don't readily remember them. And I don't blame people for not readily remembering grammar terms. And so as simply as possible, as leanly as possible, I remind people what a noun is, what a pronoun is, what a verb is. And I didn't choose the terms. Those are the terms. Well, sure. Now, but are there more? You One of the things that uh, strikes me about this book is you went through a big process of winnowing down. I mean, you really stripped this thing uh, yeah. to, to, to the nuts and bolts, which is why it's so good. Uh, tell me about what you threw out out of that grammar, out of the introductory uh, grammar definitions. Was there anything that you threw out? Oh, yes. Um, and that was, how did you go about that process? I mean, I went about it because I know the terms that people never did remember, e even if they understood it at the outset. A word like predicate, for example. I mean, to this day, I'm not quite sure what a predicate is myself. I think it represents all the words that are part of a verb package. So instead of calling the verb package all the words like will have been writing, for example. Is that four? Can't count very well. Um, all of those are going to be called the predicate. And yet, most people don't remember what the heck a predicate is. So instead of that, I'm calling it a verb package to indicate that there's more than one verb that is part of that package serving altogether as a verb. So I, I don't use the word predicate. Um, I also, I, I don't get into linking verbs. I don't get into intransitive and transitive verbs. I mean, because people aren't making mistakes with, with inter, related to those kinds of structures. So why bring them up? Okay, well, that sounds that that gets us uh, th through the 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 definitions. <laughs> um, when you wrote these definitions and and defined each of the these these things, you know, you do this whole book is written in a really lively and interesting style. Is this, and I've got to guess that this is a result of having uh, taught people who for thirty years who would walk into your class and expect to be glazed. And bored. <laughs> and bored. And probably catching up on their sleep. Yeah, yeah. Yes, from the outset. I mean, uh, I have always tried to make my presentations lively. I've always tried to invigorate grammar for people so that, first of all, they'd stay awake, and second of all, they'd understand something, and consequently, they would write better. Uh, and so my, my presentations in the classroom are very lively, and I tend toward humor anyway. It's, uh, life is more fun if, if one interjects a little humor every now and then. And so I put it into my presentations of grammar and punctuation and other aspects of writing. 
just to keep people awake. Yes, that was my original thought about using humor in the classroom. And of course, that translates into a book. I mean, in a classroom, I have a better chance because I'm all over the place. I'm walking and I'm gesturing and I'm um, bringing my voice up and down and I'm asking people questions and I'm patting them on the head and patting them on the back. And no. Yes, I do, though, actually. And so, you know, there's a better chance of being listened to and heard in the classroom, certainly, than when I am simply black letters on a white page. So, of course, I, I, I try to be humorous. Um, well, let's start getting um, into some of the specifics, the, the, the specific mistakes and things, because those, there's a lot of fun here. I, well, you've divided this book into seven sections. And tell me about each of those sections, why you chose that kind of division. Well, if I just threw the mistakes in helter-skelter, it would be hard to access uh, mm -hmm. unless I just did it alphabetically. But what am I going to call those mistakes? I mean, people probably wouldn't recognize the term I use if I called it something. For example, if I, if I call something a misplaced modifier and, and require you to look up under M to find the problem in your sentence, I mean, it, that's requiring you to be the diagnostician at the outset. You're going to have to look at your own sentence and, and say, oh, I know what the problem is here. It's misplaced modifier. I think I'll look that up. Well, that's a little backward, isn't it? So instead, I mean, I do use the term modifier, um, but the whole chapter is called that, and you can see from the table of contents what that covers. So um, I forgot your question, Rick. <laughs> Uh, the choosing the, the different chapters and, and the division techniques, which you actually oh, largely see. really answered. Yeah. So I, yes, yes, yes. I guess I did. So I know what the mistakes are, and I know the categories that they fall into, and that seemed to me the most logical way to organize the book. Now, For example, if people are not understanding when to use I as opposed to me, as opposed to myself, you know, that falls into a certain category. It so happens that the, that the confusion between IT apostrophe S and ITS falls into the same category. And it further happens that the confusion between who and whom falls into that category. So I'm not going to have a chapter called who and whom and another chapter called its and its. You know, I have to have, I have to put them together in a chapter and I happen to know what they all relate to. It's a little unfortunate that the issue is called case, C-A-S-E. I, I didn't make up the word, but that is what it's called. And it just simply means the form and it pertains mostly to our pronouns. So it was easy to group them together like that. Now, um, let's talk about case. Uh, you've got, you talk about nouns and pronouns, but I, I, I was particularly interested by the pesky plurals problems. There are many of them, aren't there? There are, but that's not necessarily pronouns and nouns and case, is it? Uh, there's, I, let me just uh, take a look. Into Unless you're talking about how to make a plural word possessive. Uh, That's yes, the, only... the, the plural and possessives. Is that what we have here? Um, case before gerunds. Oh, I love gerunds. <laughs> I love gerunds, too. Yes, uh, there, that's a lot of fun. Where was the, the plurals? Yes, classes and classes. Uh, so you're talking about making a word possessive? Uh, let me see here. I, I had something about plurals in, in here. You know, it's probably chapter two um, where I talk about agreement. Yes, agreement. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Because that's when people are unsure of what the subject is, and so they don't know what form of the verb to choose. For example, they say, um, each of you have many opportunities to enroll in this school. Each of you have? Each of you have? Okay, one could say, well, I'm talking to a bunch of people here. Yeah, have is plural. They all have. Yes, but your subject is each, and each is short for each one. And therefore, when you get to the verb, you have to remember you have a singular subject, and you cannot say each one have. Right? So it's got to be has. Or um, choosing the correct form of a verb can be difficult when w we are not sure whether the subject is singular or plural. Many people think media, for example, is, is singular. So they may write a sentence or speak a sentence that goes, the media, blah, 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 is. Huh? Or criteria. A lot of people are using that as a singular. The criteria is difficult to meet. And that's not correct because criteria is plural as is media. Um, and so subject-verb agreement can crop up w in situations like that. And, and this brings up something I thought was really interesting that I'd never really uh, thought about. And this is, I think, one of the things you do in this book very well is you identify problems in a manner so that we can come back. Once, we've, once the problems are identified, it gives us a better grasp of going back and, and uh, subjecting our own language to the correct rules because it, 
oftentimes, I think, as you say, we don't know. Yes. And once, but once we understand, for example, and I'm thinking now about mass nouns Mm -hmm. with with no plural. Could Mm -hmm. you talk about those? Yes, but you know what? Well, mass noun, I mean, that's what they're called. These words that uh, never have an S on the end, words like furniture and jewelry and advice and information. You know, we don't say jewelries and furnitures and advices and informations, but no native speaker would. And honestly, Rick, I put that list in there for non-native speakers of English because we've never heard jewelries. We've never heard furnitures when we're born into the language, right? So we don't reproduce it. We don't use it. We don't make that error. But it's very difficult for somebody whose second language is English to know which of our nouns never takes an S on the end. And so, you know... People are inclined to say, I really appreciate your advices because we've given them one, more than one piece of advice. And to them, it's logical. <clears throat> In fact, it is logical that it be called advices, and yet it doesn't exist. I didn't do it. I don't know why it doesn't take an S, but it doesn't. So that's what that page is about. It's, it doesn't contain a word that will surprise you at all. No, but I think the concept is is really interesting, and that's that's kind of what I'm getting at here. Is that one of the things you do is you you when you pull out these various uh, um, concepts, you help us understand the rules, as mm. I say, and also with your very clever examples and your kind of themed um, examples. Could you talk about creating some of the themed examples for the chapters? Yes, that was fun, and perhaps your audience won't won't even know what you mean by themed examples. But w- once I began a chapter, and it came time to give a sample sentence to illustrate the rule or the phenomenon that I was talking about, I came up with any sentence that came to my head. And typically, uh, the kinds of sentences that come to my head are somewhat flippant and lighthearted. And so if a sentence came up, um, for example, about uh, Fidel and the revolution, I would use it. And then I realized that throughout the rest of the chapter, I'm going to stick to this theme. So whatever theme came to my head, whatever first sentence came to my head as an example, if it involved Che or it involved Fidel or if it involved Chiquita or if it involved... uh, Natasha, you know, that created a little story. And every time I had to write a sample sentence, I would carry on the little story. And then at the end of the chapter, I, I would write a letter from one of the characters that you just met in the chapter to another. So that, mm, yes, each chapter does create a little story. And the quiz is, the, uh, is a discussion, really, between one of those characters and another. Um, and so I like to think that, that that kind of continuity makes it easier to read, too. It, it makes it easier to read and makes it uh, easier to understand because we're we're talking about the same thing. I and mean, we're talking about Josephine. We know right. all about yeah, There's Josephine. a context. Yes. yes, exactly. It gives you a, a context. Um, could you talk, tell us um, once and for all, solve for us the riddle of who and whom, when to use what and why? <laughs> When to use what and why? Yes. That would be easier than who and whom. (laughs) Well, whenever you have the choice between who or whom, the most important thing to remember is that you're at the beginning of a clause. You might be saying, oh, my God, she's talking dirty already. But it's not that difficult. A clause is simply a word, uh, excuse me, a group of words that has a subject and a verb in it. A person, place, or thing, and some kind of action. So, again, whether you're in the middle of a sentence that ends in a period and you're trying to decide whether you use who or whom, or whether you're at the beginning of a question and you need to decide between who and whom. The first thing to think about is, okay, I'm at the beginning of a clause, which means a verb will be coming up to the right. Go ahead and choose your who or whom. Choose your who. Most people don't even use whom anymore, so the choose your who. Put it on the page. Continue to write the clause. Inside that idea, there will be a verb. There'll be an action word. If there's nobody else doing that action then your choice of who is correct because the only job that who can do is the job of a subject. So who is correct when an upcoming verb needs a subject? For example, Janice, who took five hours to get to Santa Cruz from San Francisco, is finally here. Okay, let's look at the who clause. Who took? Well, the verb comes up pretty soon, doesn't it? It's right after the who. There's nothing in between the who and the took. Janice, who took? Took needs a subject. You may say, well, isn't the subject Janice? Nope, nope, nope. She's busy. She's inside another clause. She has another job. There's two clauses in that sentence. So we are to look only at the who clause when we're trying to decide whether to use who. The fact that took comes up right away means it needs a subject and the word who is correct. But if there were another word in between the who 
and the took, then who would not be correct? Let me give you an example. Janice, whom I took to Santa Cruz last week, is still scared to drive there herself. Janice, whom I took, whom I took. Well, took is still there, but I is there now too. And the the subject I is what is um, connected to the verb took, or rather the verb took has another word as its subject, I, right? So that clause doesn't need a second subject. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have a second verb. Every verb needs a subject. There's only one verb. It's going to have one subject. So that is why we choose to begin that clause with whom, whom I took, because we don't need a subject. You can boil it all down to this. You choose who, I think I said this already actually, when an upcoming verb needs a subject. You choose whom when the upcoming verb doesn't need a subject because it already has one. There's already another person, place, or thing in there serving as the subject for the upcoming verb. Is that too grammatical? No, that makes perfect sense, which <laughs> is why we hired you. I see. <laughs> well. Um, could you talk about uh, gerunds and, and as nouns especially because that's when they get confusing? Well, that's what they're always doing. Mm -hmm. um, in other words, that's what the term gerund means. If, if your audience is out there saying, oh, my God, gerund, I've never heard that word, or it's been 19 years since I heard that word and I didn't understand it the first time around. All right. If you stick an ing on the end of an action word, like running, walking, swimming, dancing, that word could be doing quite a few jobs in a sentence that you write. But if it's doing the job of a noun, of a thing, if it's the subject of your sentence, or it occurs elsewhere in the sentence, but it's still serving the job as of a noun, we call it a gerund. For example, skiing is my favorite hobby. Skiing is my favorite hobby. Subject, skiing. Now, if you look back at it, you say, well, how can skiing be a subject? Isn't that an action? Isn't that a verb? Mm-mm. Not with an ing on the end of it. In fact, an action word with an ing on the end of it is never a verb. You would never say, I skiing, she skiing, he running, they walking, we dancing, right? It can be part of a verb package, but you have to put a real verb in there. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, when it's serving as a noun, these action words with ing endings, that's when we call them gerunds. It doesn't really, you can call them snails. It doesn't matter what you call them. And I wouldn't even be talking about them in my book if, if we native speakers of English didn't have a particular problem. We don't have any problem with skiing is my favorite hobby or I enjoy running. We, don't, we will never make a mistake in a sentence like that. We don't know that we're using a gerund, and we don't need to know it because we're using it correctly. But there's a certain kind of sentence where a gerund crops up, and we don't know what to do with it ahead of time. A risky sentence, exactly. <laughs> Let me give you an example of that. Uh, I appreciate you inviting me to the studio, or I appreciate your inviting me to the studio. <clears throat> you inviting me or you're inviting me. Now, the gerund is inviting. Because I'm saying I appreciate something, right? And if a word fills the spot of something, it's a noun. It's acting like a noun. I appreciate inviting is what I'm essentially saying. Most native speakers of English don't get this right. They would say and they would write, I appreciate you inviting me. But it should be I appreciate your inviting me. Because that inviting word is doing the job of a noun. I appreciate your noun. I appreciate your action. You see? Mm -hmm. That's the only kind of sentence where we have a trouble with a gerund. And it's really not the gerund that we're having trouble with. It's the word before it. Which is? You or your. Yeah, the, you mean the terminology yes. for that? Uh, they're both pronouns. One yeah. is possessive. And we need the possessive form, your, because that would be correct if a real noun were coming up. For example, I appreciate your kindness. Kindness is a real noun, not a gerund, mm -hmm. an actual noun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not a verb masquerading as one, right? Right. And so before that, we would always use a possessive word. We wouldn't have any problem. I appreciate your kindness. We never say, I appreciate you kindness. So why are we saying, I appreciate you inviting? You see? Mm -hmm. And that, that crops up in that first chapter. Well, tell us about creating the tests that, at the end of each of these chapters. Oh, Some... those are always fun for me. And I, again, it's because I've been a teacher of writing for so long. This is the most natural activity on earth for me to come up with sentences that involve the very uh, mistakes that I've been talking about in, in a chapter or in a classroom. So I would write a letter from one character to another, but I would concentrate on making errors only in the topic of the chapter. For example, when I'm writing the quiz about uh, chapter one, which is 
which contains the kinds of errors we were just talking about. Is it you? Is it yours? Is it who? Is it whom? Is it I? Is it me? Is it myself? Well, then I would create a letter from one character to another, and I would be writing some of those sentences correctly using the correct pronoun form, and I would be creating the other sentences incorrectly, hoping that my reader will be able to catch the problem. So, but I would, as I'm writing that quiz, as I'm writing that letter, I have in my mind case. I'm not making any other kinds of mistakes because I'm, I'm, it's not my job to confuse you. And you're looking only for, for errors in case. In the next chapter, you're looking only for errors in agreement. In the next chapter, it's only tense. And then it's mood. And then a mood, that sounds funny, but that's verb mood is, is the name of a certain grammar area that causes us problems. And it, it involves uh, I wish I were or I wish I was. The were and the was business are part of the mood discussion. Very common native speaker mistake. Everybody's wishing they was when they should be wishing they were. Anyway, that was certainly a <laughs> digression, but uh, you get my point that as I'm writing the mood ch uh, quiz, I'm thinking only of the verb form and is it correct or isn't it because am I speculating or am I not? So I just change channels in my mind. First I'm on case, then I'm on agreement, then I'm on mood, then I'm on punctuation, then I'm on modifiers. And uh, it's easy for me. It's what I do most naturally. When Now I'm guessing that, that uh, these tests that, that you wrote might have uh, had their origination sometimes in the classroom. Did you? Did you? Are the? Did any of these show up in any of your classes in any form? No, 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 absolutely not. I have separate quizzes for my classes, and it's as I said a moment ago. The easiest thing in the world for me is to write a quiz. It's it's not something I have to take from my book and use in the classroom and bring to the seminar. I mean, I can write one and. Five minutes because that's what I've been doing for 35 years. You know, verbally, everything I, all the, all the sample sentences I'm constructing are parts of quizzes, if you will. So it's not difficult to, to uh, make them up and pass them out and include them here and put another one there. So I use my book in the classroom, yes. And so people are taking these quizzes uh, each week in the classroom. Oh, excuse me, they're taking those quizzes at home to check themselves to see how much they've understood about the chapter they just completed. I have another quiz that I then give them in class to make sure that they've gotten the concepts. Can we get those the other quizzes online? Oh, I, I suppose we could. <laughs> well, let, yeah, do so, because I think a lot of my listeners are going to want to take uh, really? both quizzes. Oh, yeah. All right. Um, the next uh, sec segment is, is about agreement. So tell us what agreement means in the grammatical sense and where it is applied and most often misapplied. It refers to subjects and verbs. I'll tell you what agreement means in a moment, although most listeners probably already know. And it applies to nouns and pronouns. It's about singular and plural. If you have a singular subject, the verb has to be in singular form. We were speaking of that a moment ago when mm -hmm. I said, you know, each of you have blah, blah, blah. Well, that's have is, doesn't agree with the subject each because have is plural and each mm -hmm. is singular. Mm -hmm. um, another agreement problem that crops up is between pronouns and nouns. Uh, and this is a biggie because we don't want to use him, her, his, her, uh, or he, she. And so sometimes, unaware, we start a sentence with a singular noun, and later on we want to refer to that singular noun, and we wind up with a plural pronoun, and we have an agreement problem. For example, each student must do their homework every week. Each student must do their homework. I mean, that's, that's very common these days. Um, it still bothers me a lot. I don't know how others feel about it, but I can't stand it. What people don't understand is the reason you you want to use T-H-E-I-R is that you don't want to say his slash her. And so you're automatically going for a one-word pronoun, yet your subject was singular, each student. Whenever this problem crops, crops up, we are generalizing. I didn't say Rick Kleffel must do his homework every week. I said each student. So if I'm going to be generalizing, I have a choice. I can use a singular word to do that, each student must do something, or I can use a plural word to do that, all students must do something. So why not go back and make your, your noun plural, and then you're free to follow it with T-H-E-I-R, or them, or they, and you don't have to mess with the he-she bind. The other uh, problem area are singular nouns that refer to group entities, and, and we have a lot of problems with when our government does their work. Yes. Well, words like government and staff and committee and community all refer to a bunch of people, really, right? And yet they're all singular. Government, singular, staff, community. 
committee. Those are all one committee, two committees, right? So if you are forming a sentence whose subject is committee and you're saying the committee has made their decision, I understand. You know, it's a little, well, it's not really weird to say the committee has made its decision. But what's in your mind are all the people that were involved in that decision-making process. And so it sounds better to you and to me too to say their decision, T-H-E-I-R. Well, in that case, we can go back and, and add another word after committee. We can say the committee members have made their decision. Uh, there's always a way out of it. You know, the government workers have done something. Um, the yeah. jurors, J-U-R-O-R-S, instead of talking about the jury, uh, you know, if you say the jury are in agreement, that's a little weird because it's one jury. And yet to say the jury is in agreement sounds strange too because how can one thing be in agreement with what? And so it's better to go back and turn that noun into a plural. The jurors are in agreement. So there are ways out. But this is another sentence type that does cause problems. Now, don't the committee members make their decisions? Well, not if they all made one decision. <laughs> you know, if they came to one decision. They can be making separate decisions, surely, in that. That's something to think about. <laughs> yes. Uh, let's talk uh, about uh, verb tense and usage. Um, we, one of the things that you talk about are, are the, the perfect tenses, past perfect and present perfect. Could you describe each of those and what our problems are with each of them? Yes. You know, usage of verb tense is an area that most native speakers of English do pretty well with. We don't have that many problems related to tense. Mm -hmm. We automatically make verbs past tense when we're talking about the past. We automatically use the future tense when we're talking about the future. So uh, it's just a couple of sentence types that uh, we tend to err with. And I don't mean to put your listeners off by calling it present perfect and past perfect. Uh, I think it's better to describe what a present perfect verb looks like. If you say I have been invited to a very tempting party. I have been invited. Have done something is an example of present perfect. I have, you have, she has. She has seen this film three times. They have been coming to this restaurant for years. Have been coming, has seen. So when the helping verb is have or has, and then there's the past form of another verb after that, that's the present perfect. And that's a tense that we should be using for something that happened more than once over the past and continues to the present moment. We use it correctly when something has happened more than once and continues to the present. They have been coming to this restaurant for years. Nobody would make an error in that kind of a sentence. But we also use it when we shouldn't be using it. We're also using it for a one-time completed past action. For example, I have received your proposal. Well, wait a minute. How many times did I receive your proposal? Only once, right? It's a completed past action. So it really should be, I received your proposal. Yet we stick that have in there. So that's in my book because that's a typical mistake. The past perfect is formed when we use had, H-A-D, as a helping verb. So I had asked her uh, to go to dinner before I learned that uh, she's a vegetarian. <laughs> I had asked her to go to dinner before I learned. Now, if we're using had done something, that has to be in a context where there are two past moments and one happened before the other. It's the one that happened longer ago that takes had as a helping verb. So the reason I said I had asked her to go to dinner instead of simply I asked her is that in my next idea, I have a simple past action. She was a vegetarian. I had asked her to go to dinner. No, 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 no. She is a vegetarian. Ooh, this is a good sentence for verb tenses. I said I had asked her to go to dinner before I learned. Learned is the nearest past action. Mm -hmm. Simple past tense. I learned. The asking her to go to dinner happened before the learning. And that's why I have to use past perfect or had. I had asked her to do something before I learned but look how this sentence is going to end, that she is a vegetarian. Three different tenses in one sentence, and they're all correct. And she is a vegetarian simply because that was true yesterday, it's true today, and it's most likely going to be true tomorrow. So we, we need to use present tense for actions that are ongoing truths. And that's another problem that I address in the tense chapter because we native speakers of English 
get stuck in past tense. We get stuck in one gear. If the past tense start the sentence, we tend to just paint the rest of the sentence in past tense. So another typical mistake would be, in fact, a, let me use that same sentence. A typical native speaker of English would put simple past tense in all three clauses. I asked her to go to dinner before I learned that she was a vegetarian. Let me try to speak it more normally. I asked her to go to dinner before I learned she was a vegetarian. Sounds normal, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Should be, I had asked her before I learned that she is a vegetarian. Unless she's no longer a vegetarian. Yes, that's right. <laughs> if she's no longer, that's right. Or if she's no longer alive, that's right. <laughs> that's true. But most probably she still is. And if she's a vegetarian. Yes, 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 most probably. <laughs> if she was yesterday, she probably still is today. Yeah. So, yeah, things like that crop up in, in tense. And there are a couple of troublesome verbs <clears throat> whose past tenses we woo, rarely get right, and I don't blame us. For example, the verb um, to lie, as in to lie down. Not mm -hmm. to tell a lie, but to lie down. Mm -hmm. It gets conjugated in the strangest of ways, huh? It's L-I-E, L-A-Y, L-A-I-N. So today I lie on the couch. Yesterday I lay on the couch. And before that I had lain on the couch. I mean, who the heck runs around saying I had lain on the couch? Well, you don't run around if you're lying on a couch anyway, but you get my drift. There's another one, um, drink, drank, drunk. I hear a lot of mistakes when people need the word drunk and they simply won't use it. They say, I had drank three gallons of orange juice. Had drank. Whee. Yeah, yeah. And I have a theory that they think drunk sounds too much like alcohol. And so even if it's orange juice in the sentence, they won't use drunk. But, mm -hmm. you know, so there are just a couple of troublesome verbs that are in that chapter. It's a short chapter because we do handle tense well, we natives, native speakers. Now, uh, one thing I really like is the discussion of mood. Most of us aren't, weren't, might not have been aware that, that words have moods. We just yes, good <laughs> moods, bad moods, subjunctive moods, yes. indicative moods, imperative moods, lots of moods. Uh, tell us what mood is and why it's important and how we misuse it. Okay. First of all, we don't misuse it most of the time. We use it correctly. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know that it's called mood, and we use it correctly. Um, for example, if something really happens, and it happens in the present, or it happened in the past, or it will happen in the future, we know how to form those tenses, and we do so, and our sentence is correct. <clears throat> if we're telling somebody what to do, we know how to form sentences that are commands. Come in, sit down, make yourself comfortable. That's a whole different mood. We don't even need to discuss it. We don't make mistakes with it. But there's another mood in our language, a third mood, that's called subjunctive. And that comes into play when we're speaking or writing sentences that are speculating about an action that isn't really happening. So, for example, a sentence that involves if. A sentence involving if can go either way. It could be talking about um, an action that's possible, or it could be talking about an action that's impossible. Let me give you a possible sentence involving if. If I move closer to the mic, I may be speaking too loudly. Okay, if I move closer to the mic, I may be speaking too loudly. Can you tell whether that's a possible action? Whether I may move closer to the mic, whether that could happen, and whether I may be speaking too loudly? If I move, I may. You should mm -hmm. be able to tell that uh, that's a possible action. Yes. If I do something, something may happen. That means it's possible. Mm -hmm. But if I say, if, di if I moved closer to the mic, I would be speaking too loudly. You should be able to hear that I'm not going to move closer to the mic because I don't want to blast my voice into your ears. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. Let me give you a simpler example. If my sister is home, she is watching television. Is it possible that she's home? Yes. Yes. If my sister were home, she would be watching television. Is she home? We don't know. No, you know she's not. Mm. I'm telling you. Oh, yes, yes, you're right. When I say, if she were home, right away you know she's not. Okay, right. That's subjunctive mood. Mm -hmm. The were and the would are telling the reader or the listener that what I'm talking about is not happening. But I'm talking about it anyway. I'm speculating. If I were a millionaire, I would uh, take a vacation sometime. I, well, one doesn't have to be a millionaire to do that, does one? But I, I don't think you would, actually. <laughs> I probably wouldn't anyway. You're right. My life is a vacation. But you see what I'm saying? If I were a millionaire means I'm not. If she were a dancer means she's not. If we were in Hawaii means we're not. If he um, were a father means he's not. And everybody knows that. Yet we have trouble with the word were. 
we don't understand that that's the one verb that we must use to indicate that what we're talking about isn't happening. We cannot use was is what I'm getting at, and we mm -hmm. often do. People say, if he was a father, he would know. Well, in one clause you've got was, in another clause you've got would. Was and would don't go together. Just forget was when you're speculating about something that isn't true. Use were. If he were a father, if we were in Hawaii, if I were a millionaire, if this were a discussion about mathematics, etc. That's it's just so fascinating. Now, <laughs> Rick, you think grammar's fascinating? I do. Well, no, I think what I think is that you you uh, capture a lot of uh, takes on grammar in a manner that that makes it fascinating and also makes it more. Uh, I think uh, grokable as some word. Grokable? Yes. G R O C? G R O K. Uh, <laughs> Robert A. Heinlein ah. in Stranger in a Strange Land. Oh, how wonderful. He invented the word grok, uh, and it's reached common usage, at least with me, and it uh, means to understand something completely and intuitively without uh, question. My goodness. That's to grok? Yeah. Hmm. There you go. A new word for you. <laughs> you can you can conjugate it for us. Absolutely. Sounds like it belongs in the swamps. <laughs> yes. Um, tell us a, a little bit about wishing. Well, this is the same topic of subjunctive mood. Whenever you're wishing for something, it is not presently happening. Mm -hmm. So we have to use the special verb form, the were or the would or any other past tense verb. For example, I wish I were in Hawaii. He wishes he were a lawyer. She wishes it were Christmas already. See, were is the, is the verb that must follow wish if you need a verb that comes from to be. In other words, you're not going to use is or am or are or was after wish. You're going mm -hmm. to use were. All of those little examples come from the verb to be. Uh, if you need any other verb, you won't have a problem. The only time we make a mistake is with were versus was because guess what? That's the only time in the English language when we have a choice of a simple past tense verb. For all of our other verbs, there's only one form of past tense. Today I live, yesterday I lived. Today I eat, yesterday I ate. Today I read, yesterday I read. I mean, there's, there, there's no other choice. Read turns into read, live turns into lived, eat turns into ate. We don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. But with the verb that comes from to be, we have a choice. I was, you were. It's the only one that has two Different mm, words mm, representing mm -hmm. the simple past tense, which is why we err. You know, other languages, Spanish, French, Italian, the Romance languages, mainly I'm not so um, well-versed in the others, but their past tense forms change with every subject. In Spanish, if you say, I lived in Hawaii last year, you lived, he lived, she lived, they lived, you hear the English, it's lived, no matter who did it. Mm -hmm. In Spanish, it changes every single time. According to I, you, he, she, they, we. So look how lucky we are in English. We never have to think about uh, changing the past tense to agree with the subject. Only when it's a verb coming from to be. And that's the only time we have was and were to choose from. So we ought to be able to get it straight the one time we need to, which is in sentences where we're speculating, i.e. sentences involving if, or sentences where we're wishing. Mm. So a simple rule of thumb is just don't use was after wish. You want to boil it down to that? That's the easiest way to go. No was after wish. You need were. Modifiers. Now, typical, we're, we're told we're supposed to get rid of them for the most part by, no. by writers. Oh, I mean, no, you just don't want to use too many of them. And we better let your listeners know that modifiers are words that describe, and there are lots of them. If we got rid of them, our sentences would be so boring, nothing would be described at all. Every table would be a table. It wouldn't be a rich, dark, mahogany, expensive table. You know, with every modifier, we learn something more about what's being described. It wouldn't be Corinthian leather. No, it wouldn't be that either. <laughs> and that would be hyphenated. Oh, dear. I love modifiers. It's my favorite topic. And perhaps you could tell by reading the chapter. Yes. Tell, tell us a little bit about um, the... Uh, let's get our first shot at the compound adjectives and hyphens. Well, we'll come back to the hyphens because I love the hyphen talk. And, and as, as you mentioned in one of your emails to me, I managed to leave some hyphens out. But it was strictly laziness on my fingers. <laughs> I knew they belonged there. <laughs> Just oh, well, compound adjective. You're poor, poor listeners. Listen, if we're talking about an intelligent, unruly child, we have two adjectives to the left of that child. 
intelligent and unruly, right? And each of them works on its own. He is an intelligent child and he is an unruly child. So we're certainly not going to connect those two words with a hyphen. But if we have a blue-eyed child, we are going to connect blue with eyed because he's not a blue child and he's not an eyed child. Well, presumably he's eyed. Uh, yes, but you would never be calling him that. We never say the child is eyed. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, sometimes one of the words does work theoretically, but it's not what we mean. A three-egg omelet. Well, it is an egg omelet. Yes, but you would never say egg omelet. That's redundant, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, so we're going to put a hyphen between three and egg when it precedes omelet. It's not a three omelet, certainly, and we would never be saying it's an egg omelet. Mm -hmm. Same thing with a 24-page book or 24-page report. It's not a 24 report or a page report. Same thing with a nine-hole golf course. It's not a nine course or a hole course. So we're going to hyphenate nine-hole. But we're not going to hyphenate to the left or the right of golf because it is a golf course. Kind of interesting. So when you have two or more adjectives to the left of mm -hmm. a noun, mm -hmm. and they need each other, one wouldn't be there without the other one, that's when we hyphenate. An up-to-date report. Not an up report. It's not a to report. It's not a date report. Those three words need each other. And you know where I first encountered this? I was 11 years old, and I was reading uh, um, J.D. Salinger's Nine Stories. Mm -hmm. In one of them, a woman in an elevator flashes her, I don't give a damn smile. And I don't give a damn was all hyphenated. I hyphen, don't hyphen, give hyphen, a hyphen, damn, smile. Because it's not an I smile, a don't smile, a give, you get the you get the point here. Mm -hmm. And I looked at that thinking, oh, my God, look at this. What is this? So hence was born my curiosity about punctuation. Thank you, J.D. Salinger. Um, prepositions. We can talk about some of these these uh, connectives, that, that, as you call them. And, and it, it really interests me uh, what you say about connectives is, is that uh, – conjunctions in particular, that they have a meaning, that they're not just connective tissue. And that's that's something we tend to forget, isn't it? No, not well. We don't think about it consciously. Mm -hmm. But you're using and in a certain spot, and you're using but in another spot, and you're using so in a third spot. So unconsciously, you know what you're trying to convey. You're not going to use and to join all your thoughts because unconsciously you know, and consciously too, but you're not thinking about it, you know that and means here comes something agreeable or congruent with what I just said before. When you use but, you intuitively know that what's coming up is in contrast. When you use so, uh, you're doing that because what's coming up is a result. So we are very aware at some level of what these guys mean, or we, you know, we'd just be using one of them all the time. Now, uh, could you explain, uh, tell us about if versus whether and who wins and when? <laughs> well, each wins in its own context. When we are, are setting up a condition, we should be using if. For example, if I arrive early, I will tell you what led to the writing of my book. If I arrive early, that's a condition that I'm expressing, and that's correct. I'm saying under a certain condition, I will tell you something. Uh, but the the error that is very common is that Americans are using if when we should be using whether because in many of our sentences we are not setting up a condition. We are simply offering a choice. For example, I don't know whether I'll be on time. Yet most Americans, when I say Americans, I mean native speakers of English. Uh, most native speakers of English would say, I don't know if I'll arrive on time. Now, that's not a condition, if I'll arrive on time. That's not a condition under which I don't know. That, that makes no sense. It's a choice. I don't know this or that. I don't know whether or not I will arrive on time. Now, you do not have to write or. You do not have to speak or. But if mentally you can put it into the sentence, that's proof that you should be using whether. So that's the best test for, for people. Now, now this is a kind of a test, I think, uh, that uh, uh, Boole that you use throughout the book of um, you give us things to plug into sentences to tell whether we're saying the right thing. Um, but you just use whether correctly. How wonderful. <laughs> you just said <laughs> I'm you glad. give us a list of things to plug into sentences to tell whether, yes. But a lot of people would have said to tell if we're writing them correctly, and that would have been wrong. So bravo to you. That's a good weather, whether or not you know it. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> I just was uh, spewing at, the, at light speed. Well, tell us about this kind of uh, – um, 
is it a rule or technique for for teaching? Is this something you came up with in years of teaching? Yes. You mean the little hints, like if you could put or in the sentence, yeah. then, then you're going to need whether. Put, putting not. something in a sentence yes, like I, that. Yes, I try, I try to find ways to allow everybody to access the right answer easily. Little, little, I, I don't always come up with that, certainly. Mm -hmm. But there are certain sentence types that lend themselves to little tests. That's true. Now, about punctuation, I have a perennial problem, and I want to get your take on it. I'm writing about a book, mm -hmm. and it's got a, and I'm writing in a way that I don't want to, uh, or or a short story, and I'm writing about it in a way that I'm not don't want to set off set off the title using italics. I just want to set it off with quotes or single quotes or double quotes. Some. I kind of go back and forth as to how I want to refer to books. My my default setting for me when I write about books is I put set off book titles in single quotes and story titles in double quotes because they seem story titles are smaller. Stories are shorter than entire books. So you're using double quotes for the smaller and single quotes for the larger? Yeah. Well, you have it backwards, Rick. Oh, do I? Okay. Well, tell, tell me. I, and, but I say you have it backwards, but it doesn't. the rule doesn't pertain to whether it's a story or a book. Mm -hmm. The rule pertains to whether it's one quote mm -hmm. that somebody wrote, uh, words that someone wrote or that someone spoke, or whether it's of a quote within a quote. Mm -hmm. In the United States of America, double quotes are used for everything except for a quote within a quote. Mm -hmm. That's the only time we may use single quotes. Mm -hmm. So if I'm quoting Rick, Rick said, double quote, mm -hmm. and then within what Rick said, he's quoting somebody else, mm -hmm. that's when I would use the single quotes. Mm -hmm. And that's it. So, I mean, of course you can continue doing what you want, but it's, um, it's not kosher, <laughs> I must say. <laughs> okay. Well, here's my question. When I come to the end of a sentence... And I've got this title. Does the period go inside? Always, always. I don't care what you have. It can be a title. It can be simply a word that you're being um, sarcastic in using. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be the end of a whole quoted sentence. It doesn't matter what the double quote is at the end of. Periods go inside every single time. And it's mm -hmm. not just periods. It's commas. Commas and periods always go inside closing quotes. Wow. Just memorize it. Uh, it's not exactly great. logical. I don't particularly like the rule, but it is the rule, and you won't find anything in this country uh, published here that has a comma or a period outside the closing quote. Mm. In other countries that, whose language is English, in England and um, Australia and Canada, they have different rules. I won't even confuse you because we're not there. We're here. So put all your periods and all your commas inside your closing quotes. When it comes to other punctuation marks with closing quotes, the rule is different. But the most common one we come across is the comma and the period. Where do we put it? Outside, inside? The answer is inside. Just follow the rule. Now, what about these other punctuation marks? Okay. Semicolons and colons are going to fall outside a closing quote. Think about it. You've quoted what somebody said or what somebody wrote. You wouldn't end that person's statement in a colon and then close the quote. A colon says to the reader, hey, here comes a specific explanation, but I'm not going to give it to you. I'm closing the quote. And a semicolon says, that's only half the story. Here comes the other half, but I'm not going to give it to you, and I'm closing the quote. So there's no way the colon and the semicolon belong to the words of the other person you're quoting. Ah. So if your sentence calls for a colon or a semicolon and you just finished a quote, that colon and semicolon are going to lead to the rest of your sentence, mm -hmm. not the rest of the quote. And so those two marks fall outside. Now, when it comes to question marks and exclamation points, they go inside the quote or outside, depending on what they belong to. In other words, if the quote is an exclamation itself, the exclamation mark goes inside. If your overall sentence is an exclamation and it just happens to end in some quoted words, then it will go outside. And the same thing for question marks. In short, the most logical rule of all governs the marks we use the least, the question mark and the exclamation point. I mean, it makes sense. You put it inside if it goes with the quote. You put it outside if it goes with This makes sense. Mm -hmm. But we apply it that way only for the question mark and exclamation point. Wow. That's Weird, so, isn't it? Yeah, it's, and it's great to hear it kind of, as I say, laid out. That's one of the things, again, that this book just does very well is it spells it out in a way that we can maybe, as I say, after looking it up about 15 times, you start it starts to see. Oh, I hope it's fewer. <laughs> 
I hope it doesn't have to be 15. You know, with rules like that, you just memorize, man. Commas and periods go inside closing quotes. Don't think about doing anything else. Just type them inside. Boom, that's it. Don't make sense of it. Don't try to understand it. Just do it. You don't have to look 15 times to figure that out. I would think you don't have to. Yeah. (laughs) Some of us have more sieve-like brains. (laughs) Stop. You're not one of those. Well, um, the other thing I really, really uh, loved, let's talk a little bit about dashes and hyphens. What's what? Why? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. we have a lot of problem with them. They do. It's in the typing of them. Um, Most people don't realize that a dash is twice as long as a hyphen. So if the hyphen is the shortest horizontal mark among your keys, you have to hit it twice to create a dash. What people usually say is, don't you mean an M dash when I talk about a dash? Well, in my mind, it's true. There's something called an M dash and something called an N dash. I'm not talking about the N dash at all in my book, in my vocabulary, in what you write, because don't even worry about it. The hyphen is the little mark that connects blue-eyed. And it collects nine hole before golf course. You type two hyphens and you have what I'm calling a dash, which is uh, the one we use all the time in the sentences we write if we know how to use one. Um, And its purpose is very different from the purpose of a hyphen. As we've talked about, the hyphen connects these multiple adjectives. For example, she flashed her I don't give a damn smile, right? Uh, But the dash uh, has a very different use. It can surround an interruption. So if I begin a thought and then I interrupt it to explain something and then I resume the thought, I have some choices there. It doesn't have to be dashes. But dashes are one way of leading into and out of an interruption. My interviewer, Dash, Rick Kleffel, Dash, is very articulate. Rick Kleffel is an interruption there. The main idea is that my interviewer is very articulate. And that's a simple interruption. It could be more complicated. It could be longer. It doesn't matter. It's an interruption. Mm-hmm. And around any interruption, I can use commas, I can use dashes, or I can use parentheses. Now, commas are going to give Rick Kleffel ordinary attention. Dashes are going to give him maximum attention, and that's why we have the choice. Mm-hmm. When we want the reader to pay maximum attention to the words that are inside the interruption, we put a dash to the left and a dash to the right. And you can guess what parens do. They give Rick minimum attention, as if I'm cupping the side of my mouth and saying, my interviewer, you know, Rick Cliffle, is a very <laughs> articulate guy. And, and I also was really pleased to see, find out when we need to use brackets, because <clears throat> those of us in the software coding business have different ideas about brackets. Mm-hmm. And so it's nice to find out what the language coding people think about them. Yes, you're talking about the square guys, not the round guys, right? Yes. The round uh, mm, punctuation marks are uh, parens, and brackets are the square parentheses, I think of them as, but they mm-hmm. are called brackets. They have only one use in, in r- the writing of, of, of English sentences, not necessarily coding, but and that is when you are adding your words inside a quote to explain something to your reader, and you may do that. Let's say I'm quoting something that, that Rick said yesterday, and yet he used a term like grok that mm-hmm. I didn't quite understand, and I don't think my reader will understand. So right in the middle of Rick's words, I can, right after I type the word grok, I can use a bracket to explain what grok means and then close it with another bracket. And my reader should understand that Janice is adding that explanation to Rick's word. Well, that's a very helpful. <laughs> now, um, when having gone through this book and, and you know talked about this stuff, are, are you finding... Is there anything that, that you uh, feel have been told that you should have put in? You know, no one has told me that I should have put in anything that isn't there. And even if they had, I would say, well, that's your opinion, but I've been looking at people's sentences nonstop for more than three decades, and I don't see that problem often enough mm-hmm. to warrant including it here. Really, the subheading of my book is, of subtitle is, A Guide to Avoiding the Most Common Errors in Grammar and Punctuation. And <clears throat> if it weren't already so long, I would have added two more words, and they would be nothing more. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. It's just the most common errors in grammar and punctuation. So, you know, I'm not going to add everything under the sun. There are many more errors out there than are in my book. But I'm speaking to people who already write well. 
and, and are competent in the use of our language. And yet these little tiny things um, go wrong, and the people usually aren't even aware of them. Another typical one is the word only. We throw the word only too early into our sentences. So we say, I only have $5. When what we mean is, I have only $5. It's $5 that we're trying to highlight, not have. So if we just wait a minute and put the word only directly before the words we want to highlight, it'll be a much better sentence. Not that we miscommunicate throwing it in too soon. We've got inflection and body language and common sense on our side to help us get across what we really mean. But the sentence is a lot sharper and a lot more impressive when the word only is in the right spot. So it's things like that are th that are in my book. Um, one of the things that, that uh, struck me uh, about this, too, was um, the title. Oh, yes. Well, many people realize that a clean, well-lighted place is the title of a short story written by Ernest Hemingway. But an um, independent bookstore picked it up several years ago and called itself a clean, well-lighted place for books. And in 2006, when I was finished writing my book, that bookstore was going out of business. And I said to myself, what a shame. That title shouldn't go to waste. I'm going to use it. I liked it not just because I didn't want it to, to die, so to speak. I wanted to carry it on. But also because when sentences are grammatically correct, they're clean. And when they're well-punctuated, they're well-lighted. So I thought, what a perfect title. I'm going to use it. Janice Bell is an English professor and writing consultant and teaches writing and grammar at Golden Gate University. Her first book is Clean, Well-Lighted Sentences. Thank you for joining me, Janice. Oh, it's my pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.